welcome to Much More Than the Law, a production of the law firm of Much Shellis. I'm your host, Ed Shapiro, and on Much More Than the Law, we introduce you to the heartbeat of our firm, its people. We discuss developments in the law, get to know some of our clients and community partners, and we hope to inform, educate, inspire, and maybe even share a few laughs along the way. We really look forward to continuing to share this journey with you. Our guest today is Luke Harriman, vice chair of our firm's Wealth Transfer and Succession Planning Group. Luke advises individuals and families on uh, all manner of estate planning and probate issues. Uh, Luke, welcome. Thanks, Ed. Glad to be here. What we want to do is is to get to the the much more part of this, uh, which is a little bit about about you and your family and how you how you got to the place where you are today and some choices you made and and uh, and whatever else comes to. Uh, <laughs> to mind as part of our discussion. So we know that you actually grew up in Montana. Yeah, believe it or not. What was life like in the growing up in Montana? Um, not as different as you might think. I did not live on a ranch. I did not ride a horse to school. <laughs> so it wasn't that rustic. Grew up in a small town of about 7,000 people. I used to tell people where I was from. And since then, the, the area in Southwest Montana where I grew up, which is near Bozeman, is kind of blown up. And now everybody everybody knows about it. So I, I grew up in, um, in a town of about 7,000 people, about an hour from Yellowstone Park, about 30 minutes from Bozeman, Montana, which is where you know we needed to go to Walmart or something like that. <laughs> we'd, get, we'd go to Bozeman. But, you know, it was a great upbringing, obviously a beautiful area. I think as like a teenager, I, I didn't really appreciate it that much. I was like, ah, oh, this nature stuff, this is, you know, this is lame. I want to go go to a big city, which I did. But, you know, looking back on it, it was a wonderful place to grow up. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people uh, I know have been to, to Montana and, and fly fishing and uh, a river runs through it. And I, I think that that's what is conjured up in a lot of people's minds. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's true. The movie was filmed in my hometown. And my extremely you know, minor claim to fame is that my great grandfather was a chemist and he was the inventor of the fiberglass fly rod. So he was, he was a chemist working in all that stuff. And he developed, you know, way back, fly rods were made of bamboo. Now they're made of graphite. But for a long time in between, they were made of fiberglass. And he invented that, right? So that <laughs> I have kind of a long lineage from that. So was fishing part of your life growing up? Or it's just a fun fact about your grandfather? Uh, it, mostly a fun fact about my great-grandfather. It wasn't a big part of my life growing up. We went fishing sometimes, hunting a few times, but not we weren't like by Montana standards <laughs> that outdoorsy. It was a part of it, but mo- yeah, mostly just a, an interesting vignette. Let's say with your family, um, siblings uh, growing up. I had siblings growing up. I still have them. Thank goodness. Thank yeah, goodness. I, I don't. How many? How many siblings? I two, both younger sisters. So I'm the oldest. Middle one is now a psychologist at Yale University in their student counseling center, and then my youngest sister is in law school. She's a three L at Georgetown. So following in her big brother's footsteps, for better or for worse. (laughs) (laughs) Are there other lawyers in your family? None whatsoever. (laughs) I was trying to think, because I've heard you ask other people this, neither of my parents, none of my grandparents, none of my aunts and uncles. I have a lot of cousins. None of them are lawyers. I don't think any of them married lawyers. I don't even know of any second cousins. Um, <laughs> definitely not like a big family legal dynasty. In fact, I um, I told, I think he was a family friend, but I, I said, um, oh yeah, I'm going to law school. And, he, and his response was, law school? But you're such a nice guy. <laughs> like he was, he was shocked that I would do that. So no, it wasn't exactly a well-worn career path for me from the beginning. So you, you were the trailblazer, let's face it. How did you end up in Chicago? For college. So growing up again, I thought, oh, this small town and this 
incredible nature. This is kind of lame. I want to go to a big city. So I, I wanted to go to school in some kind of urban area. I got really interested in economics, read some books kind of in high school, got really into that. So the University of Chicago was a perfect fit. So I, I ended up there for school and that was how I ended up here. And did you end up actually studying economics in, in college? I did. Yep. I was a undergraduate economics major. My initial plan was to become an academic economist. Some things happened differently and I ended up here, but yeah, that, that was my undergraduate major. Take us through that process, that transition. You go to college, you study economics, you think you might be an academic economist, investment banker, get into business or, or, or whatever the pathway, yep. the typical pathway is. So you take us through that transition. It's always fascinating to me that the, the reasons why people chose to go to law school and, and enter this profession. So what what was it for you that you in that direction? <laughs> yeah, law school is like option number five. <laughs> it just kind of worked out. So I initially wanted to be an economist and realized partway through college that to be an economist economist, it's really at the undergraduate level more about math than knowing about economics. So I was trying to be a math major. And I got to the, I think it was the, you know, the second quarter of real analysis in my second year. And I realized like, this is just, this is just way too hard. <laughs> you know, I could muddle through it, but there were people who were just, it just really came completely naturally too. So I dropped the math part of it, kept that major. And then the next plan was to do investment banking and management consulting were sort of the established career paths for undergraduate econ majors. The two problems with that were number one, I graduated from college in 2009 which, you know, if you think back, was a, not the easiest time to try to get into the financial industry. And then number two, I think I was at some kind of seminar, like recruiting fair for an investment bank. And one of their junior analysts said, like, you know, this job really isn't too bad. Like, you know, a lot of the times I get off by 10 p.m. Um, and it, you know, so it's not really bad. And I thought, maybe I need to rethink this a little bit. You have to listen to those voices, right? Uh, and And sort of make a decision at a time when we don't all necessarily know ourselves well enough, right? We're making this decision in our you know, early 20s, mid 20s, trying to figure things out. And it's not always easy. And, and it's always important to sort of listen to that voice, right? So good for you for listening to the voice and saying, ah, I don't really think I, that's the direction for me. So you end up, you take the LSAT. Yeah. Right? And, and, it, and it really was like that. It was, it was kind of like, well, let's see. What can, what else could I do? I like reading and writing. <laughs> you know, what are jobs I could do where that involve reading and writing? And so I thought, uh, what the heck? I'll take the LSAT. <laughs> and that's, but but also, but also, interestingly yeah. enough, it, there has to be a connection, and it has to be a benefit for you to have studied economics, even if you only focused on the math for a couple of years out of your undergrad career, and and applying that to what you do now. Say the concept of opportunity cost. You know, opportunity cost is the concept that the, the cost of doing something is not just, say, the direct financial cost. It's also the other things you can't do because you're choosing one option. We could have, say, some kind of estate planning strategy where we're suggesting that a client put money into some kind of trust or something like that. You know, the real cost of that is not just what are the direct tax costs or fees associated with that. It's also what is the other thing that you can't do because you're doing that, right? Concepts like that are you know, supply and demand marginal cost, marginal benefit. So how was your experience in law school? It's different for everybody. Some people love it. Some people maybe don't love it so much. Uh, sometimes that has a relationship with how they enjoy their professional career once they graduate from law school. What was it the experience like for you? I completely loved it. It just, it made sense. You know, my, my classmates were great. 
I, I like the school, but just the subject matter. It was interesting in and of itself, and it also worked very well with a sort of structured way of thinking and organizing things, which was kind of the background I had had as an undergraduate, except in law school, instead of math, I got to use words mostly, right? And so that was, that was easier than the math part, but it still rewarded you know, very analytical, concrete ways of thinking about things. I loved it. <laughs> My part-time job, I was like a TA for some classes, and it was a very positive experience. Talk to us about the decision to focus on the wealth transfer estate planning area. It's another really interesting uh, discussion that uh, we've had on the podcast before, sort of what informed every each one of our decisions to enter into um, the area in which we practice. So what was it about estate planning for you that made it attractive and made it so you wanted to focus on that? Kind of like the decision to attend law school in the first place wasn't you know, like a planned out thing from the beginning. I knew, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to do litigation just because I didn't think that was really where my, where my strengths were. And again, coming into it very naively, I was like, okay, so what else is there? <laughs> I had a vague sense that there was something called corporate law. I had a vague sense that there was something called, I just had this nebulous concept of tax law, which turns out when lawyers say tax law, what they generally mean is transactional tax law. And I knew there was something called estate planning. So I, in law school, started off at a big firm just because it was, especially at that time, there are many people like me who had come into law school right in the Great Recession. And then there were a lot of those people coming out at the same time. So it was a tough job market. So couldn't pass up the opportunity to start at a firm where I would kind of have that, that offer to start like in my second year, basically. So I went, not really sure what I was going to do and what area I wanted to do it. Did a few different things over the summer. And the estate planning stuff is really interesting. There's definitely an analytical side to it. The tax laws are pretty complicated. The strategies are pretty complicated. But the great thing about estate planning is that you are working with individuals you know, and their families on really personal decisions, right? I mean, it's it's not for a company. And corporate law, other things can be personal too. But with the exception of divorce law, I don't know if there's really anything that's as personal as estate planning. And it just seemed to me like that would be a really rewarding thing to work on, right? You could kind of tangibly see what you were doing with people in a more immediate sense. And oftentimes working with people at their most vulnerable points uh, in, yep. in their lives, which in and of itself can be very rewarding above and beyond what type of trust to set up and, and so forth. So again, to be able to recognize that as something that would be attractive in an area of, of concentration is, is a really important thing. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it's really hard to get that sense of what it's actually like to be a practicing corporate lawyer, to be a practicing yep. litigator, to be a practicing estate planner, while you're in law school, even sometimes when you have your internship after your first year or second year, really, really difficult, at least in my experience, to really get a true sense of what it is that we and you and I are in, in different uh, areas of concentration, but what it is that, that, that a lawyer like that does each and every day. Was that your experience? Oh, yeah. It was, it was very difficult. And what finally seemed like it helped in, when I was asking people, okay, so, you, know, you, can, you can describe like, oh, I do, I do estate planning. You know, I do corporate law. <laughs> you know, what, so what I started doing was asking people, like, what did you do this morning? Right? Like really specific. Were you on the phone with somebody? Were you drafting a document? 
what were you talking about? And I actually found that making that question really specific and granular about, you know, what did you do today was more helpful than tell me conceptually about corporate law, right? I mean, because you don't really get a sense of what it's like to actually do it. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, I, you know, I, I think law school is going to have to and, and law firms are going to have to address that as part of the, the education and decision making process to sort of help the next generations of lawyers really make the right choices for them. Yeah. as individuals and professionals. And I, I you know, certainly think that would raise the, the fulfillment slash happiness quotient, right? If you're doing yeah. if you're doing something that that fits with who you are and your and your values and your substantive abilities, you know, all all the better. Let's talk a little bit about about your training, maybe moments or you know, meetings that were impactful in, you know, maybe early in your career. Um, that really kind of solidified, you know, your your decision to go into this area? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the biggest one was after I had started, I had been practicing for, I don't know, maybe a month, maybe less. When a partner basically said to me, you know, this client's here, his wife died, you're going to be working on this estate, the meetings in 30 minutes or something like that. Maybe it's a little more notice. But I got brought into this meeting where this, you know, with this man whose whose wife had passed away. And we were, just like you said, at the same time, dealing with implementing the estate plan, you know, figuring out what the assets of the estate are. There's going to be estate tax returns that need to be filed. There's going to be income tax components. There's going to be these different trusts. And at the same time, you know, this man's wife had just passed away, right? And so seeing how the partner at that time handled that, it was, and he was exceptional in the way he did it in terms of sensitivity, but also giving direction and helping kind of alleviate some of the uncertainty about it. And that's really turned into what is the most rewarding part of my job, which is that you know when somebody dies, we can't do anything about the personal tragedy of that, right? But if we can help people avoid, in addition to having that personal tragedy, also just you know a financial and legal mess on top of it, and if that makes it 10% easier for them, then that's definitely something that's well worth devoting my career to. And so that was the first time I saw somebody doing that. And I thought it was... It was inspiring. It is what I wanted to do. Well, you know, it's interesting as you were describing that. I was thinking to uh, about your friend who, when you told this person going to go to law school, they said, well, <laughs> "Law school, you're, you're too nice." Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, not that you know, nice and compassionate. It's different, but it's really part of the essence of who you are, probably, that your friend was recognizing, without recognizing the fact that we do bring our true selves, or we at least have the opportunity to bring our true selves to very uh, sensitive, difficult moments uh, that our clients are, are managing. And while we are not counselors or therapists in, in the psychological sense, we do have to be very, very skilled at, at listening yep. and acknowledging what it is that they're going through beyond just the immediate problem that is in front of them, right? Mm -hmm. The immediate issue that has to be resolved from a, a legal perspective, and to be compassionate and to show compassion. And, you know, your area among, you know, all the areas really uh, lends itself to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the interpersonal part of it is the most complicated part of it. You know, we, we deal with the generation skipping transfer tax. I was, no joke, just yesterday trying to figure out something about the rule against perpetuities. <laughs> you know, we actually deal with that. But the interpersonal part of it is infinitely more complicated in terms of what people are dealing with, how you read somebody, right, in terms of what approach is going to work best for them. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Just picking up on that. So what is your approach, right? So you're, you're preparing estate plans, you're creating trusts to, to protect children, 
uh, guardianships in, in certain situations. How is it that you approach these, you know, what in many cases can be very difficult conversations, right? Certainly to talk about death uh, and, mm-hmm. and what's going to happen and young couples who have children. Um, what's your mindset going in? How do you prepare for it? Sort of walk us through your process. Obviously, it varies depending on the circumstances where somebody's coming in. But most clients come in for the first time doing their estate plan, right? I mean, they they have some vague notion that I should have a will or something like that. And usually, in many cases, that's as well-defined as that sense is. They know they need something. They don't know what. And having had this conversation with a lot of different people over the years and having tried it different ways, what, what I've actually found really helpful is just really it's a lot of educating people about, for example, if you do nothing, right? You just stay with your current situation where you know you don't have a will. Say you're married and have kids, but you don't have a will. You don't have any estate planning documents. That means that if you're ever disabled, it's likely that a guardian would need to be appointed for you. There would need to be a guardianship estate. Under Illinois law, under the intestacy laws, if there's any asset that doesn't have you know, a joint designation or a beneficiary designation and you die, half of it goes to your spouse. The other half goes to your kids. A lot of people assume it's all to their spouse. It's not. And then for the kids, if you have minor kids, they would have to have a guardian appointed for them while they're minors, and then they get everything when they're 18. So just walking through that, telling people, you have an estate plan, right? This is what it is. And as I described it is, you know, not really what most people want. I don't like to lead with, oh, let me tell you all about Luke Harriman and our strategy and everything else. Like, let me tell you something that you may not have known about what you have in place. And that kind of sets the stage and motivates people to do more. It's really fascinating how, and I'll just, you know, people in my own family, the resistance to wanting to actually go through this process. And as, you know, as lawyers, we feel this responsibility, this obligation to work with certain of our family members who may be uh, hesitant to sit down with an estate planning attorney and sort of, as you say, there's an estate plan that already exists in the absence of one, the law has established what is going to happen. You need to know about that. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. If not, here's what we need to be thinking about. But just that that sense of not wanting to really think about or face all of our realities at some point in the future, right? Um, yeah. And appropriately planning for that. So let's talk a little bit about life outside the law. I know you have, because um, I've seen the, the pictures, at least two, right? Adorable children. At least two. Yeah, there are three. There are three. I knew that. Yeah. Here we go. Um, and what remind me of their ages? Our son is six and the twins are four. So a very busy, busy household, I suspect. Yep. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of full tilt. I mean, there are legitimately times when I'll come to work on Monday and I'll sit down and I'll get my coffee and I'll be like, oh, I can finally relax. Right. <laughs> and it's, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's great. I love being a dad. We're constantly on the go soccer practice, Cub Scouts, all that kind of stuff, but it's great. And finding, and I know there's a lot of talk about work-life balance, and and I'm not sure that quite exists. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about that, but, you know, really making the choice, if you're fortunate enough to be able to make the choice Mm -hmm. of how much time you can spend with your family and your children and and so forth and so on. Yeah. And I think that's important because we sometimes conflate two different things. Like there are people who, you know, if you are, I don't know, working at a minimum wage job, like you don't have that choice. Right. And and I don't think we should conflate where we are with, with where other people are. 
you know, we do have a decision about how to do that. And I actually like the concept. I hear a lot of people pushing back on the concept of work-life balance. Like, oh, there can't really be a balance. I don't know. I think there can be. I kind of like the idea of in any given day, spending meaningful time on your own health, with your family, and also at work, right? I mean, so obviously you have to figure out how it's scheduled, but like, you know, in the mornings, lately, my son and I, I go running in the morning and he rides his bike with me, right? And so that's a way to get both my exercise and, and spend some time with him. So I'm definitely a fan of of trying to fit that all together and and making you know because if you if you don't have something meaningful that in your life outside of work if you don't have you know things that you're passionate about family that kind of thing you know work will just push back on all that you need something pushing back the other way too there's no question i mean this there are a lot of very very difficult jobs out there for sure uh, a lot of difficult professions and um it's it's trying to be intentional about about how we how we spend the time, the gift of time that we have yep. in a given day. I love the run with your son while he's on the on the bike. I mean, it's a yeah. great, it's just a great thing. I remember having, you know, baseball catches with my son before we go to school in the morning. And it could be 10 minutes, but yep. but it's it's intentional and such so valuable, you know, ways to spend time. What are you reading these days? What <laughs> uh, what kind of books do you like to read? What's on your uh, your nightstand or Wherever you you're keeping your, your your books these days, I try to. Some phase of life, I'm more successful reading than others. But during the pandemic, especially, this has been a, a good reading phase. Recently, finished a book called "A World Without Email" by the author's name is Cal Newport, and it's it's fascinating. I mean, the the basic thesis is that the human mind, when, when we're working on something, does best when it has sort of long periods to concentrate on one thing. Right. So if you are continually being interrupted, say you get an email and it pops up and you have to turn and look at that and you go back to what you're doing, you may only turn and look at that email for 30 seconds, but the actual impact on your cognition is much bigger. It's like it takes like 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get back to what you're doing. And it's especially salient if you have a multiple projects at work that are all being managed and unfolding just based on constant back and forth email messages, you know, it's really difficult to actually get focused work done. So it's kind of a different pointing that out and kind of some suggestions for how to how to manage that and how to structure things differently. So you don't need all that back and forth. Incredibly appropriate topic, particularly as we're, as we're still in the pandemic, but as we worked our way through the pandemic and, and trying to manage time while we were out of the office and, and what that looks like and, and you know, when, when is work time and when is not work time and, and, and trying to just sort of make those choices as well. Hard to do when the emails are coming in and the texts are coming in and, and so forth. Interesting book. Let's talk a little bit about any, um, I know you mentioned, you mentioned Cub Scouts. So is he, a, I'm trying to remember back, back to my Cub Scout days. So he would be what, a, a Weeblow? At this point, no, or? no, he's uh, we below is I think fifth grade. I should know. So I I don't like to let the power go to my head, but I am the co-den leader for my son's Cub Scout group. So <laughs> it's a pretty uh, <laughs> pretty lofty position. Um, yeah, so he he does that, and a lot, you know we're we're involved in our church. There's soccer practice. A lot of what I would just say like miscellaneous suburban dad stuff. You know, I'm, <laughs> I drive a minivan around a lot, and my wife does too. And we're and we're trying to figure out. So she actually just was a stay-at-home mom for a few years and just went back to work. And now we're we're doing this with two working parents now, which has been really good, but it does introduce a, a different set of challenges. Like, you know, how do we make all this work? It's chaotic fun. It's a great descriptor for life, raising young children and, and trying to 
keep it all together and keep things moving in a positive direction and, and uh, you know, passing on our values to kids and so yeah. forth. So uh, chaotic fun is that, I love that phrase. So with that, I, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you you spending some time with us on the podcast and, and sort of sharing a little bit about your backstory. It's it's too bad we lost a potential great economist. I don't think I don't think I don't think we did. But, <laughs> but uh, we're we're definitely glad to uh, that you made the choice that you did, and and we're really happy that you know you chose to to uh, join us several years ago, and um, and now with co-chairing the group, it's just great to, to to have you at the firm. So really appreciate your time, and we'll see everybody else uh, next time out. Thanks oh, for good. joining us. On Thanks, Ed. Much more than the law. <laughs>